Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance. Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions, so please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. So, Charles, how are you doing? Did you get back from South Africa okay? Yeah, I managed to get back by the skin of my teeth. A bit of a mad dash and fortunately got home just in time to avoid the hotel quarantine regulations. I bet that was very stressful. (laughs) Yeah, 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 it was. Just very grateful to be back and also great to have seen my family. And now looking ahead to Christmas. I know. Feels very much we're in the... uh festive swing of things maybe it'll become a tradition to be almost on the brink of lockdown before christmas each year yeah it does appear to be that the story repeating itself hopefully we can move beyond that by next year and of course this is our final episode for the year before christmas yeah so uh, we're taking a little bit of a break over the festive season but we'll be back with the next episode on the 13th of january and certainly it's been very exciting to see all the encouraging messages that we've had from listeners great that people are finding the podcast useful and it's really been good the messages we've had from people suggesting topics for future episodes so lots of exciting stuff planned for next year yeah and please keep getting in touch with any kind of ideas for topics or things that we should discuss so really excited for today's episode though Really pleased to welcome Mike Hosking here. So yeah, welcome Mike. Can you just give us a sense of your role, Mike? Mike Hosking, I'm the Chief Risk Officer of a few Berkshire Hathaway entities. So I'm the Chief Risk Officer of Genry International PNC, and the international bit means everything outside of North America. I'm also the CRO of Faraday Underwriting Limited, and I also look after some of the risk teams in Berkshire Hathaway International and Berkshire Hathaway Europe. And I guess the component parts of my role within that Chief Risk Officer title are everything you'd really expect, risk strategy, risk appetite, definition around exposure tolerances and man-made cat tolerances and then monitoring and managing that risk for the company. Ultimately, our main ethos is to improve the strategic decision-making and day-to-day decision-making that the company has has got in front of it. It sounds like a massive job, especially across multiple entities. It is a big job and it's a varied job. What I like most about it is how different every day is and how different each part of the day is. One day we'll be looking at nanotechnology and solar flares and the next day we'll be looking at climate change, ESG and operational resilience and that sort of differentiation of the role I think which is very exciting to me and very exciting to the people I work with. You mentioned a moment ago that you see the role very much as helping to improve the quality of strategic decision making. 2021 is a year where strategic decision-making has been particularly hard. Yeah, really hard. And I think it continues to be so. I was looking back as we were preparing our last group risk packs and committee packs and board packs for this year, trying to think about what position we were in this time last year and what 
kind of uncertainty we were going into because I don't think anyone really knew what the shape of a pandemic recovery was going to look like, whether or not that was for a life health perspective or on an economic recovery perspective. And we're still learning what the shape of that recovery is. But there was a lot of uncertainty around second, third, fourth, fifth waves, different variants. And we're still dealing with a lot of that uncertainty now. But we have seen a lot of economic recovery, which is positive from this year, last year, which I think we can take in a couple of ways. One is it was great to see a certain degree of consumer confidence and client confidence come back in, in terms of new projects and innovations, which is obviously where insurance comes in to try and support that. But then looking into next year, I see the uncertainties in a different way, where we have sort of a recovery system and and people are getting used to the pandemic direct recovery. But all global governments are in a very weak position at the moment. They've built up a mountain of debt trying to boost the economy and boost the health industries out of the dark place that they were in. But I think a lot of those tools that they would normally have in their toolkit are gone. You see the UK inflate interest rate policy and the European interest rate policy, where They're very reticent to try and commit to a movement, which they would normally historically have done. They see really high inflation. They would alter monetary policy to adjust for that. But they don't want to react very quickly because they're worried that that might reduce any recovery from the pandemic. So there's still a lot of uncertainty, I think, going into next year. Inflation has really gone up the agenda for everyone, not just in in the insurance market, but in the economy in general. To what extent is inflation bad news for insurers? And to what extent does it present a growth opportunity in your view? That's a great question, Charles. I mean, I see it probably more on the negative side, only because I'm the professional warrior and I'm thinking more reserve deterioration and accelerated loss costs. We had a a few catastrophe events and non-cat events actually in 2021, which clearly there was a large inflationary impact in some of those loss levels. So making sure that we incorporate that into our pricing for 2022 is really high up on our agenda. And also, I think thinking a bit more structurally about inflation, different types and different component parts of inflation, categorizing what those are, and then defining maybe our treatment of those different types of inflation, both explicitly and maybe implicitly. Social inflation or excess inflation shocks being on one side versus an overall trend of inflation and what we think the shape of inflation is. But you're right, there's an opportunity and the driver of that inflation, say the economic recovery that we've seen, and that recovery indicates more economic movement, which then leads to a greater demand for insurance. It is cyclical, but I possibly lose sleep over the downside. What other long-term changes do you think we might see as a result of what's happened over the last 18 months or so, almost coming up to two years now, that you think will kind of carry on and play out? Yeah, I think there's a couple. First, I would say that there was, as we've any sort of event where we haven't necessarily got it in our top five or top 10 risks from a PNC side of things, there's the ambiguity around coverage position. And we really saw that for the last 18 months where there's clarity required over certain policy terms and conditions. And I'm really hoping that that really pushes us to have a greater discipline across all policy terms and conditions, not considering just from a pandemic exposure perspective, but for everything, it should be very clear and very black and white in 99% of the time, exactly what our policies are looking to mitigate our clients' risk for. And there's an expectation of a level of understanding, but I think we need to work with clients to make sure that that is very clear. And also look at using the pandemic as a way of exploring other events or scenarios where that ambiguity could rise again. I think a fairly obvious example is around cyber, where we haven't seen an extreme large cyber event of a severity where it would come to question some of that 
maybe non-affirmative silent cyber exposure that might exist or that clients might have in their mind as a protection that their policy gains. I'd like to see more work in that space. And I think certainly work in the cyber space a little bit more directly as a result of the pandemic. I think there's an opportunity from a risk function side, though, on the pandemic world. We all, all don't want to see bad things happen, but it also heightens the focus on the job that we do. We're there to try and understand what uncertainty and unknown unknowns could happen. I don't like calling the pandemic that because obviously we knew of pandemics in the past and, and what extremes they could be, but we hadn't really delved into the granularity of the scenario of a pandemic in a modern economy and what the obvious reactions would be by governments to a serious risk to health and life, where the Spanish influenza, for example, is probably the most comparable one to this in modern times. That was a completely different world at a completely different time in the world, right, in terms of priorities and what could be done, globalization, a modern perception of what government policy was there to do. So that's what our job is, is to try and identify those scenarios and hit them in a level of granularity that actually are real life, modern, tangible, realistic, and also that action can be taken on the back of them. I hope for a risk function perspective that we use the pandemic as a kind of springboard to doing our job better. Absolutely. You talked about cyber and cyber is definitely something that I was very keen to discuss with you today. I was keen to ask is how you have observed the nature of cyber risk changing and how you've evolved your risk function to cope with that and to keep abreast of it and to help advise your firm as to how to keep appropriately making money out of cyber, but also managing the exposures and the risks. Another tough question for me to try and put in a small box, Charles, but let me have a go. So first of all, from a trend perspective, clearly the severity and frequency of cyber events has been increasing, right? The, the nature and type and scale complexity of the cyber threat is higher. And that hits the attention of the risk side by looking at both the operational impact of that. So internally, making sure that our cyber resilience as an insurance company is good enough, but also from a potential loss level within various areas. Now, we're lucky because we've got a foot in the Lloyd's camp. We have a nice sort of timetable of strict exclusionary pieces that they're trying to do in order to reduce some of that direct non-affirmative exposure, you know, that clarity of wording by having those clear exclusions in there. But that's not the case in all places. And ultimately, there's a commercial reality here as well that there's only so many exclusions clients will accept. And we have to be very careful at the negotiating table exactly when we're going to try and put additional restrictions on policy terms and conditions. The other tricky thing, I think, is your point of that changing way that cyber manifests itself from a physical and non-physical trigger and the fact that we have no case law of loss levels, so how this would be treated in the courts, and the fact that we haven't got any indicators of exactly what it would do to business interruption and contingent business interruption policies. So we struggle. Again, we try and use the tools at our disposal. And lucky enough, you know, we've got a lot of good underwriting teams and actuarial teams who help support manifesting what could happen or scenarios that could happen in a realistic as way as you can do without the data points, but also looking at it from a practical underwriting perspective of what can we cut out, what can we price for, what can we avoid, and what can we exclude. And we've been taking each of those different techniques, avoiding certain industries or certain high intensity data, harvesting places for some of the sort of speciality and casualty classes, 
and looking to price it where we understand the risk a bit better for, for, for those classes. The risk is a little bit more contained. We have changed approaches and I'm not saying we have the answer yet. We're starting to frame a way that we look at cyber specifically, both affirmative and non-affirmative exposures. We've touched on contract uncertainty both in cyber and in COVID. We talked about how complex risks like cyber risks are now much more front and centre, even for maybe smaller medium businesses who perhaps were hoping they wouldn't have to think about them too much. All of that leads me to want to ask you the area of conduct risk. In other words, how how insurers and reinsurers treat customers fairly, look after the policyholders. How has that developed as an area that you and your team look at? And I'm aware that obviously you've got a lot of your businesses are reinsurance focused, so maybe a step removed. Even for reinsurers, uh, conduct risk is something you can't quite ignore anymore, is it? No, we, we can't ignore it. And I think the attention in that space, in that conduct space, is definitely you know going to continue to increase. And I think that that's important for us for a couple of reasons. I mean, yes, on the reinsurance side of things, we have to make sure that our clients, even though they are clearly well-informed purchasers of reinsurance, because by the nature of it, they understand the policy terms and conditions, that's not always the case. We're not always dealing with those large insurance companies. It's often much smaller local insurance companies that we'd be dealing with. We also have some of that personal lines and consumer business exposure as well. And that business, we have spent a disproportionate amount of time looking at from a conduct risk perspective, from an FCA fair pricing perspective. I look after the compliance team as well on the Faraday side of things. So the insurance book there where we have personal lines exposures, we spend a lot of time making sure that the marketing material is correct, that there are various metrics around the sales process. So the whole product journey is one which makes sense for the end consumer and to ensure that we have a lot of detection mechanisms over the top of that business to ensure ensure that any sort of adverse trends are picked up, whether or not that's product value, you know, low loss ratios, whether or not that's high complaints or high claims denials, all of those things are front and center of our mind. But we are able to rank the importance of that oversight in the place where it needs to go the most, which is individual vulnerable customers, and then moving up the chain to where you get the high sophisticated reinsurer insurance companies. How would you say the UK compares in its approach to policing conduct risk amongst insurers compared to other territories? I'd say it was very advanced. In terms of the way that we look to protect UK consumers, I think that it's probably one of the most advanced of the developed global regulators. And rightly so. I think we don't like to say that we invented insurance, but we should certainly be at the high end of making sure that it's a product and that that continues to add value. And I think something like the pandemic, where we did a little bit of a damage to the insurance and reinsurance industry in terms of, again, fighting claims where some people were expecting to be paid out on those policies, we have some reputational damage to try and fix there. And I'm hoping we can do that through clarity of policy wordings, clear terms and conditions, and making sure that we're pricing our products in a way that makes sense. And looking at each element of the value chain to make sure that wherever the money is going, that it's going and directed in the right place where parts of that value chain are actually adding value. Another area that I'm aware is hot on risk experts' agendas at the moment is culture. How do you see that as a risk? How are you thinking about that at the moment? 
It's a really tough one. I'm definitely someone who leans more towards metrics and data and culture is a very difficult one to get tied into that box where I would understand it better. It's, it's sometimes soft and fluffy, right? Which is how it has to be because you, you can't break down, let alone one human's behavior, let alone a collection of humans' behavior to a set of metrics and dials, right? That's, that's not how we work. Yeah, culture, I think, is really tricky and, and fostering a positive culture within your company is difficult as well. And there's also sometimes contradictory motions within companies where they try to search for a culture which doesn't actually fit the business model of the company, right? Do you want to only hire innovative high flyers if you're a traditional monoline marine insurer? Probably not, right? You want people who are seasoned individuals who are ready to do that. If you hire a load of innovative Google and Facebook interns, then you're probably not going to have the right culture to fit the product and the business model that you're trying to go to. So people want to be careful about how they define the culture and the culture they're seeking to make sure that it does match to what they going for. The first thing is setting and defining that culture from the top end is, is important, right? And sometimes culture just naturally takes place so that information is absorbed in a certain way and the direction of culture takes a certain travel point. And then you can go away and try and define that culture once you've set it in place. And I think that's the case for a lot of startups where they'll go into an area, they know what they want to do from a business proposition. And then naturally that culture is born out from one or two individuals who might be leading that push. There has to be a stepping point though once you get to a certain scale and capacity where you have to say okay well then let's try and write down what that is let's let's try and write down what the taste and feel of our company is so that we can carry on being as productive as efficient as effective as we have been the early stages of our positioning and that culture can be really really powerful but it has to have all its mechanisms work in the right order we think of it you know a bit of a sub text of culture in terms of risk culture. So that would be the leadership, the governance being right, the incentivization schemes, directing the right, promoting the right behavior, you know, making sure that there's value statements that people can actually attach to what their day-to-day -day jobs are. You know, those are all important things and by far the most important parts for our culture are around integrity and transparency. There's a famous Warren Buffett quote that you can go and have a look at when Solomon Brothers came down where he was sort of in front of the US Congress and he said, look, I say to all of my employees, you lose me money and I'll forgive you. You know, you lose me an ounce of reputation and I'll come down on you at a ton of bricks because his feeling is if there is anything that you are doing today that if was to turn up and be reported on in the newspapers tomorrow and you were embarrassed that your friends and family were reading that, then you shouldn't be doing it. And that's an ethos which we kind of live with. I think that's interesting. Do you think that culture is driven from the top down or from the bottom up? So should the culture come from the staff or is it a management-led thing? I think it's a bit of both. That's a horribly political answer to the right question. But sometimes cultures can evolve without the tone at the top having much direction in that. And that comes with the people that you're hiring in and the way that you ask them to translate information to and from each other within the company. I think it should be a combined piece. And, and we've always done it in a combined way where we will look at various local areas and regions for their own sort of cultural initiatives so that they can understand how they want to operate locally. We'll look at it at a business unit level where we will go and ask various working groups to come up with what they feel the culture is and what it potentially could be to be better. But then we'll also ask the senior management team to do the same thing. And then once we've culminated and all aggregated that, all that up, then playing it back to people in a way that makes sense and translates well with the conversations they've had. And then once you've done that, there's the measurement part. And actually, it's, it's an exercise that we're doing at the moment where we break culture down into three components. There's the policy bit, what you write down, you say that you're doing, what your values are, how you say you operate. 
Then there's the process bit, and that's where we're actually looking to see whether or not those policies are clearly being operated, various processes. So when an incident or something bad happens, did we actually have a no-blame culture? Did we actually deal with it quickly and adaptably? And then we have a people part where we go and interview 20 or 30 people and we ask them what they feel the culture is and how the value is and concerns that they might have or risks that they might see in the future and how they try and communicate that. So all of those things are pulled together and hopefully provide a useful monitoring exercise to see if the culture we think exists is actually there. Absolutely. So, Mike, I want to look to the future now and think a little bit about what you would consider to be the skills that you need to bring into your team to be an effective risk team of the future. Skills is a, is a great question. And I suppose I kind of indicated how broad the skill set sometimes has to be with the number of topics that we have to attack. And I think if I start on the softer side first, because I think that some of the softer side pieces are maybe a little bit um, more constant. The first one is you almost have to get excited about everything, right? You have to have this natural questioning element where you want to learn. Actively, every day, you have a question on your lips every time you hear someone give a fact or a figure. And that's an important energy to have to make sure that you continue to understand the company that's operating and also the people within it. So that would be my first side. The other skill set it is that there's a relationship with stakeholder management part, which is big, and, and that aligns with the communication side. You know, it's so vitally important that you understand the key people within a company so that you can operate well within them. There's a lot of time where we will be asking for information functions from function heads at busy periods of time where things are maybe not going the right way and or not going as planned. And being able to do that in a way which provides context for why we're doing it, but also convinces them that it's an important thing and useful thing to do. So that relationship and, and communication style is key. And also the standard stuff of making sure that we're not killing people with too much reporting and making sure that the, the information that we're providing is palatable and understandable and digestible so that then, as I said before, that decisions can be made on that information. So I think those are sort of the constant skill sets. So I guess that's on the software skills side. Mike, what about on the more technical skills? This is a much more difficult question to answer because, uh, as I said before, the broad spectrum of activities we get involved in means that you really do have to have a balance of a, a number of different skill sets. The technical side, I think that, and certainly from the companies I'm involved with, data and analytical uh, ability is quite high up at the moment. And I think that we will continue to have that as, as the forefront of a sort of standard skill set, that quantitative skills, the ability to assess and understand large reams of data and to be close to the capital modeling, the reserving and the pricing side of things is a key one for us. But I think that there's also a number of other technical skills which we haven't had in the past, which we will need to. And we talked about cyber a lot earlier on, and that ability to understand in the same way that we would do actuarial models to understand the IT side at the same level of depth. So when people are talking about immutable backups and locations of servers and, and how different technologies and applications within the company connect to each other, we need to understand that from a, a risk both from an internal operational resilience perspective, so what that supply chain is uh, or in important business services that we have running through the company, but also the connectivity to what that is to the business model itself. Sometimes we're the translation tool of sophisticated IT understanding to when it's going to be important for the business to be able to access the applications for them to continue to, to meet the objectives of the business plan. No, I think that makes a heck of a lot of sense. And, and I suppose we've all had to learn to work in new ways over the last 18 months. 
to what extent do you find you and the risk team developing new and different approaches to managing risk or to managing stakeholders? The approaches one, I think, is important as well. I mean, there's this balance, I always say, when, when we're talking about the programme of work that we're going to do for the next year, I say, look, we, we want to make sure that it's recognisable to other work that we've done, but we also don't want to make it stale. So you have to keep it a little bit fresh and, and exciting. Now, I am a massive fan of face-to-face discussions. Which, uh, I feel that that provides, you know, one of the strong things that we can give is that we can provide uh, an interactive dialogue as opposed to uh, an email chain of, of, of sort of one-sided conversation. And that has been very difficult um, in, in a remote um, world to try and get right because all of those side conversations, those water cooler ones, those ones where people might not feel like they want to report something to me, but they just nod into the office and just say, oh, well, you know, I just want to let you know about this, Mike. That wasn't happening. And, and that, you know, gave me a horrible panic in my mind going, well, I'd normally have 10 or 12 visitors by now and it's lunchtime and nobody's giving me a chat on Teams or a, or an email to say they wanted to talk. That's not because I talk all day, by the way. That's, uh, that's not part of the job. But I think as, as we've developed some of the approaches, I think from whatever hybrid world we end up being in, I think using all of that technology pieces to make sure that that works, right? So and I think that's not dissimilar from the, the risk side of things. I think using, you know, uh, Teams, Instant Messenger, emails, wh- wherever you can to try and make sure that that communication is happening where it needs to. From the approaches perspective, I still very much like trying to get people in the room together who would not normally be in a room together. So if we're doing scenarios or workshops or brainstorming exercises, deliberately trying to get people into a mental state where they feel like they, they're seeing things and understanding and learning things that they wouldn't normally do anyway. Apart from getting the main product out that we, we want to, is which is a defined output or a set of actions or activities, we're actually adding to people's day-to-day understanding of how the company operates. That's certainly something that we tend to target. That's great. And what do you think about the role of technology in risk management? Has it reached a stable state or are we going to see a lot of change in the coming years? I don't think it would ever reach a stable state. We, we maybe have gone through steeper curves of technology advances um, in the past, but that's ever increasing, both in terms of the data capture and the granularity of information that we have. I mean, there's so many times where I would want in a certain level of information, which currently doesn't exist at the moment, which is policy terms and conditions, where exposure data, you know, clash covers for different parts of the book, that that ever increasing need to have more data and that data to be refined in a better way, that's always going to increase the need for technology to support that. And the risk functions is again another key user of that advanced technology. So Mike, to sort of bring it all together, I'm keen to get your sense of looking at the insurance market, let's say the international reinsurance markets or the London market. What do you think the one or two things are that most insurers are going to need to do differently over the next couple of years in order to remain competitive and remain relevant? Yeah, that's uh, another good one, Charles. I, I think differently enhancing some of the elements that they had there in in the first place, but need to get a little bit better at. I think the client comes first is absolutely still the mantra that should be um, that should be thought of what exactly is the risk that our clients have that they are looking to transfer and understanding that proposition as best we can so that we can then understand the risks that we're adopting on behalf of our clients um, and clarifying 
that risk. As we were saying before, that clarity of risk transfer is where we add our value and what we want to make it clear to give other people peace of mind, clients, personal, uh, individuals and consumers, but also the large insurer and reinsurers. They want to have certainty of their balance sheet and we want to have certainty of our balance sheet. So it's in everybody's best interest to classify what that risk transfer exactly is. I would hope as well that we will continue to be a bit more adaptable and innovative as an industry. Sometimes we get told that we're a little bit uh, traditional and slow moving. Um, and I think that there's going to be a number of disruptors, hopefully, that will prevent us from doing that and that we will continue to, to have to spend as much as we need to on research and development and innovation of new products, but still keeping that core concept of understanding what risk transfer we're actually adding to the, to the equation. Thanks very much. Great. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been a really great conversation. What is the one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of rugby, and that's not necessarily that surprising. And in fact, I think it is on my CV. I watch way too much rugby on the TV, as my wife and my children will tell you, although I have managed to drag them into that interest a little bit. My two younger ones both play rugby. And in fact, we're going to the Saracens ground this weekend for my daughter's rugby practice. And we'll be watching the senior ladies play after the practice. So I'm looking forward to that. I suppose from the other side of things, I'm also a massive fan of Mario games. So, you know, so whatever Nintendo game that's coming out, I would like nothing better than after the rugby playing that with with my three daughters they're better than me already fantastic yeah great lastly any kind of recommendations for something to read watch or listen to that you've particularly enjoyed recently I've got to say, and this is probably a bad thing for someone who considers themselves relatively academic, I really don't like reading for, for leisure. I <laughs> Mainly because I read so much at work and maybe it doesn't feel as, as much leisure. I much prefer to go for the audiobook route, um, both from a, an efficiency and productivity perspective, because as much as people judge me for it, I like to go running and listen to it at the same time. But what is probably a little bit more cliche as far as risk uh, officers go, I, I, I still like my financial economics and behavioral economics books. So I like Tim Harford. I like Michael Lewis. And uh, Michael Lewis is probably more famous for Liar's Poker and The Big Short because of the big Hollywood films. Um, recently, he's done a book called The Premonition, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story or something along those lines. So I'm quite enjoying that. And it's all about US government and the US health care system's response to the pandemic that's my recommendation i think that is the second week in a row where we've had tim harfield as a recommendation from our guest so clearly one for listeners to watch out for thank you so much mike that's all we have time for this week on insurance uncut please join us in two weeks time for another episode this podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.